You're listening to the ILLA podcast, the online home of lectures and conversations hosted by the Institute for International Law and the Humanities at the Melbourne Law School. Welcome everybody um, to the latest in our series of joint sessions hosted by ILLA, the Institute for International Law and the Humanities run by Sandhya Bahuja at the University of Melbourne and the more, much more ragtag organisation um, that is run by myself and a number of colleagues at the University of New South Wales, which is called Critique, a network for, and I always forget the second half of our name, which is not that important, legal, moral and political thought, but I think law comes last in that formulation. So it's a joint endeavour between ILLA and the Critique Network at the University of New South Wales to come together through the auspices of Zoom um, to share ideas around particular academic skills. Um, and before proceeding down that route, I should acknowledge that um, I'm sure many of us on Australian land are coming from different nations, but I am Zooming to you from Gadigal land in Sydney, and I want to acknowledge um, that that land was never ceded uh, and to pay my respects to their elders past, uh, present and to come, and also to express my solidarity with their struggles for self-determination and justice. Without further ado, I should now introduce our special guest today, Ilan Wall, um, Sanja and myself will often offer reflections around a set of skills and then get students and ECRs and colleagues who are on the call to join in uh, relatively informally with some discussions. And the idea is that we will share our, share our reflections and everybody will hopefully learn something in the process. Um, and every once in a while, we invite somebody who knows a lot more than either Sanja and I do about a given topic to talk about a topic. And today that is Ilan Wall. Um, Ilan is a reader. Il, you can correct me if I get any of this wrong. It's slightly strange formally introducing such a close friend, but Ilan, I think, is a reader uh, at Warwick Law School and among many other things, uh, besides being a dear pseudo uncle of two uh, young children of mine through that door. So Ilan, Phoebe and Leo say hello and everybody on this call can probably hear them at the moment. I'm sorry. It's the witching hour in Sydney. Um, but besides those personal qualities, Ilan is a reader at Warwick Law School. Um, is the author of two books, the second of which I think is shortly out called Law and Disorder. It's an absolutely fantastic book. Um, I recommend everybody read it. Uh, in addition to that, he is an editor at Law and Critique. He is one of the managing editors at the UK-based press, Counter Press. And perhaps most relevantly for today's discussion, he is one of the editors of Critical Legal Thinking, a blog which many of you hopefully will have engaged with in your work so far. So without further ado, I'm going to hand over to Ilan to give us some reflections on academic blogging. Ilan, take it away. Hi, everyone. Right. Um, so, so I should also say th thank you to, to Sun and Ben. I, uh, it's a lovely invite. I have to admit it's forced me to kind of crystallize some of the, the things which we've been working on and thinking about for the last 10 or so years with critical legal thinking. Um, and my undergraduates are now clamoring for something similar. Um, so yeah, it's been very useful for me. Um, uh, I should also say my two children are likely to uh, burst forth from a stairs over there and demand snuggles in about uh, five minutes time when they wake up. Um, so apologies for that in advance. Um, so, so I think, it, so I work with Critical Legal Thinking, which is a blog which has been going for about 10 years time, about 10 years, excuse me. Um, we started it after the anti-globalization protests in London in 2008, and then it kind of died for a couple of years, and then it was revived around the time of the student protests in 2011. Um, so it was, it was conceived 
originally and you know in its in its various different kind of origin moments as a direct intervention into political and social questions of the of the time um and so uh i think you know in that sense it's po possibly slightly different from the other kind of major um blogs um you can legal studies blogs i'm thinking things like ejil talk uh, and for Fassung's blog, blog and all of the other various different kind of legal blogs around uh, the blogosphere. Um, so critical legal thinking, the reflections which come from that may be ever so slightly different from the, the, the advice you'll get from some of the other more kind of straightforward legal blogs. But I think most of the ideas remain the same. So I would say the, the question which I think which I've been thinking about is what what makes a good blog? Why why do we accept some and not others? And so I think there are probably three elements which make a good blog and then so I'm going to reflect on each of those and then I'm going to say a little bit more about about audience and reception and thinking about um, writing for audiences. And um, so the first thing which makes a good blog is is the hook. Uh, so a good blog should have something which drags an audience in, which pulls them in. So in, in blogging, uh, the vast majority of blogs will have a, a snippet, and that is the, the first two, three hundred words. And that shows on the front page of the blog, gives um, the reader a sense of what the, the post is going to be about. So that snippet needs to be captivating. It needs to make a person want to click through and, and read more about whatever it is you're writing about. So there are lots of different ways of doing that and you've possibly covered this in other writing um, uh, seminars, but you know something like giving a sense of the place that it's, it, it's about, uh, the event which you're going to talk about, um, perhaps an anecdote or indeed your kind of broad argument um, is, is really, really important in that first two or 300 words. It's really important, however, that you don't just do the kind of undergraduate essay. Uh, you, you know, you can't say in this blog, I am going to argue this, that and the other thing. That's a really, really bad snippet. Um, it, it has to kind of perform the style that ultimately the bot blog is going to be in. So you're not just giving a sense of the ideas, but you're also trying to convey the way in which those ideas are going to be presented as you go through. Um, so the snippet needs to excite a reader's curiosity. Uh, and it should show how you write. That's the first thing. The second thing then is the development. I, I was trying to, I was thinking whether or not I need to say anything about this. this the development is basically then just like the, the rest of the blog. So what you don't see in the snippet. Um, and the one thing I would say about development is, you know, so all of the usual stuff about, you know, writing journal articles and stuff applies to this, except the one thing which is perhaps different in a blog post, I think, is, is pacing. So, you know, a blog should be between 1,000 and 2,000 words, usually. Sometimes they go over that, but generally speaking, it's under 2,000 words. Um, so after you take your snippet out, you have between 800 and 1,800 words. And so you need to think about, the, 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 about how much time you need or how much space you have to develop particular parts of your argument. And so, uh, so I think some posts are still kind of working in what we might call kind of journal time. You know, I've got 8,000 words. I need to develop the contours of this idea. I need to um, uh, like sketch out a particular uh, field. Uh, and they, they over labor points. And so they're not, 
they're, they're in, in the 2000 words, they kind of don't cover enough material to make it worthwhile for people to continue reading. Um, and then at the same time, others think too journalistically and they move too quickly through the ideas. And so you get often quite short paragraphs, like almost like souped up bullet points. And both of those lead to either a feeling of lightness or a feeling of, of turgid heaviness. And those are things that you definitely want to avoid in a, in a blog. Um, so that's development. And then the third thing I think, which is really, which kind of opens onto the question of audiences is, is the payoff. So uh, unlike lifestyle blogging, for instance, a legal or critical theory or a feminist blog uh, shouldn't just be about repeating what everybody else knows. Uh, it shouldn't be just about your experience in a club or a restaurant or whatever. Although, you know, I for one would absolutely love to see some, some genre of critical legal lifestyle blogging. I think that would be amazing. Anyway, kind of futurist style, you know, recipes for critical legal studies. But in any case, that's, that's my fantasy. Um, uh, but, you know, when, you, when you're thinking about, about a blog, you should be thinking a little bit about, about what, what you're trying to excite in an audience. Um, so you have to remember that a blog, hopefully, if it works, should, should give the reader a little kick of serotonin. So there should be that kind of like, that should be that pleasure, enjoyment. There should be, you know, something which um, makes a, a reader think, you know, I'm glad I, I, I read that. I've got something out of it. Um, so, so that, that you, you know, you're trying to give that payoff that that kick of serotonin that kind of moment of of interest and excitement and and that then opens on to the kind of the second set of of questions that we have for a blog so the first thing is like focusing on how you write it what you're trying to put into it and then the second thing is to think a little bit about what a blog does once it's out there in the world um, so the aim of blogging is to try and move from the readership which maybe you know comes across a journal article or a book through a, a, a search or uh, you know routinely reads a particular journal um, you try to get a, you try to think about that type of readership but you're also trying to think about that extra element of of shareability or of, of virality which you know a blog can can have so um, the aim is to give the reader that little kick of serotonin, which then leads them to think, oh, you know, I'd like to share that little kick of serotonin with my friends on Twitter or on Facebook or Instagram or whatever. So you're trying to, to, to kind of connect into that social media ecosystem where blogs can move um, in really surprising ways through networks which you ordinarily wouldn't have access to and which th through which you know journal articles definitely don't gain you access to so you're trying to, sh to share your work in a, in a different way um, in a way which is slightly more chaotic and very difficult to map unless you're on our side of the blog where you can see how things um, move like that and, and map them so thinking about virality then thinking about that kick of serotonin that, that kind of st sparks off the desire to share something. I think we can think about uh, that in a, in a variety of different ways. So I think the first way that people think about trying to, to write for virality is they, they think that their blog should be about edification. Um, so people think about it like a journal article or a book where the ambition is to add to the general sphere of knowledge or 
to make a particular intervention in a particular field of discursive production, blah, 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 all that sort of stuff. But actually, um, blocking is only partially about edification. There are other dynamics going on in it because it is in this kind of sphere of, the, the, of, of social media and uh, opens onto virality. So, so one way of thinking about that additional element that you get with a blog is to think about the affects that you might like to excite in a reader. So uh, a lot of the work on virality and on sharing uh, materials focuses in on what we might call the kind of negative affects of, of anger, anxiety, uh, and anger, anxiety are both really strong reasons why people share materials. So. Um, uh, I suppose you could also add in awe, but I'm not sure if that's a negative affect. But so anger, anxiety, and awe are the, are the kind of big reasons why uh, news pieces in particular tend to, to circulate uh, widely. Um, unfortunately, I'm not entirely sure that anger, anxiety, and awe are the type of affects that you'd like to be producing in your work. Um, maybe a little bit, but you know, I don't, I don't think that they're, they're particularly well suited uh, to the type of blogs we're, we're, we're looking at. Um, so a second order of affects, which also produce very high levels of, of shareability or virality, are surprise, interest, um, affirmation, amazingly enough, and practical utility. Um, so, uh, you know, surprise and interest you know, they can be very minor surprises. So I'll give you a couple of examples in a second of, of, of blogs, which, which I think do this to some extent. It can be, you know, so like there's, there's one, um, Balzocchi Bully's piece on uh, governmentality, which is a part of our key concepts uh, series, is one of the, the kind of widest read uh, posts on critical legal thinking. I think it has, you know, in the region of 100,000 views. Uh, I think it's something like 50,000 a year at the moment, which is, just, you know, that's, that's quite high for us. Um, the, the, there's, it starts with this little anecdote about, or well, like, like Foucault got it wrong. He called the, the series on, I can't even remember what it is, sort of like governmentality, the wrong title. And he then acknowledges that he got it wrong. So it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of interesting. Like Foucault got it wrong and he realizes he got it wrong. Okay. So there's this kind of like minor surprise, which, which is enough to pull somebody who's interested in the, the idea and the concept into it and, um, uh, and, and lead them through into what is then a kind of much more sophisticated description of what governmentality is. So that's, that's the kind of surprise or, or interest that you're, 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 you're generally um, working with. It's not, it's not uh, some sort of shock revelation generally, although we've had a few of those as well. Um, so the, the other thing I think that, so, so practical, so affirmation and practical utility are also quite interesting. Practical utility in particular is interesting because what, you know, one of the, one of the other reasons why things go viral is, is because um, for better or worse, I think a lot of academics use Twitter and Facebook as a way of saving materials for themselves so that when it comes to constructing a course in nine months time, they'll be able to go back and find it and, and use it. And, and that then also works for the people who see that someone has shared it. Those people also think, oh, I'm going to save that in the same way. And so you get this kind of weird um, virality in some teaching materials or materials which are going to be useful for teaching. Um, so in that sense, thinking about practical utility, thinking about why a blog might be useful 
for, uh, for, for, for teaching in particular, um, I think is, is sometimes quite useful. So our key concept series, uh, I mean, is every single year we have between 10 and 100,000 views per item on that key concept series. So they're, they're some of the most widely read and they're definitely, they have a much longer life than the more topical uh, posts. So, um, you know, materials which are going to be used for teaching or which are going to be useful to kind of instantiate a point within a, an undergraduate or postgraduate module are definitely some of the most successful and they're some of the posts which are most likely to have you read for a longer period of time. The other final element of this, which I think uh, is important to remember, is that um, when people share something on social media uh, or, or that thinking about that, that kind of sense of virality. One of the things that's happening is that they're externalizing something. So um, people tend to share materials which uh, crystallize their thoughts or, you know, something which, um, you know, allows their thoughts to be, or thoughts which they would ascribe to, to be viewed by others and then a, a liked and so the 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 kind of the process of, of sharing on on social media is is about kind of presenting something which you think of as yourself and then having that approved of or liked uh by other people so there's that there's this kind of externalization which goes on in social media now i mean i think it's all it's it's all spectacle so you know we we put forward an externalization of ourselves which you know, perhaps doesn't necessarily fit. It's what we think other people are going to like sometimes of ourselves. And, you know, it's very curated and all of that sort of thing. But nonetheless, when you're thinking about writing for a blog, then if you can put your ideas in a way which are clear and which convey something uh, that that many of the, of your, your friends or something um, would would also ascribe to, then that also was likely to have that externalization that it, that's also likely to be um, to be shareable and and have that condition of virality. So I think, you know, thinking about all of these type of things is is a useful way of of um, of thinking about what makes a good blog. The, the final thing I would say before I finish and hand back is um, that, you know, I think if you were to sit down and write a blog with all of these things in mind, you probably would, wouldn't write a particularly good blog. Um, I think, you know, we sometimes get caught up in like overthinking things. And so I think what my suggestion to you would be write, write something, you know, you have an idea, write it in between a thousand and two thousand words. And then afterwards when you're finished when you're happy with the way you've made the argument and everything like that come back to it and think a little bit about that or think a lot about that first 200 words and think about whether or not you're putting in whatever it is that you're putting in that 200 words whether or not that's going to drag an audience in um, and i would suggest you think about particular people you know think about your supervisors and your your friends and everything like that and then and think about whether or not they're likely to kick, click through Oh no, maybe somebody is shaking your head and saying, don't think about your supervisor. Um, but in any case, you, you know, you're trying to think about whether or not other people are going to engage in this idea and find it interesting. And the chances are, if you find it interesting, then there's going to be an audience out there uh, who also finds it interesting. 
uh, th that's when I would then start thinking about, you know, the affects which are going to excite in people or whether or not there is going to be interest or whether or not there's going to be practical utility. I think, I think all of these are, are, are reflections which you would have after you finished writing it so that you can optimize what you've written rather than starting out to, you know, excite anger and awe and uh, uh, anxiety and all of the other things which I've talked about. Um, so that's about it. That's what I have. Can I, I jump in there and can I jump in and ask thinking. a question? Yeah, I have a couple of suggestions. I'm happy to share them on the chat if you want me to, but talk to me. No, Thank no, I didn't correct. mean to interrupt you, please. No, uh, go for it. No, no. No, so um, it's interesting. I mean, to some extent, you've shared the cum accumulation of your learning. If you, what's the most surprising thing that you've learned from 2008 or 2011 in the reinvention of the blog? Um, what's the most surprising thing you've learned? Like what thing did you, did you think before about blogging that you, that was completely changed? Um, so, I mean, the first thing I learned, which I mean, continues to shock me is just how much interest there is in uh, critical theory, critical legal ideas um, out there. There is uh, an interest uh, and it, among, you know, kind of academic and graduate circles, but there's also a really wide readership. So we get contact from readers uh, to some extent around the world who have absolutely nothing to do with universities. And so there, a lot of posts are being read um, in a kind of in a completely, you know, para critical, para university world. Like there are yeah. people who are just interested and engaged in these questions around the world and, um, and want to read material which is not produced through conventional media circles and find critical legal thinking for whatever reason. And, and use that as a way in. And so there's, I'm, I've increased, this is why we set up Counterpress ultimately, because we, we realized that there was this, the, I mean, we knew it to some extent, but we didn't perhaps know the, the extent of it. There is a, there's a world out there of people who are autodidacts and are engaged and, and committed and really interested in reading work and that actually, you know, paywalled journal articles will never connect with those people and can never connect with those people. And so I think, um, you know, I think it lifted our horizons in ways that we didn't expect. Um, also with the student protest, like what happened, uh, some of the ideas which, which we were discussing and thinking about and which we published, things like Rory Rowan's post on um, swarms fed directly into the tactics and strategies which were used subsequently. And so, um, you know, the the ways in which these ideas circulate is not at all what we were expecting and it has changed the way in which we encourage posts and and encourage people to write um uh you know the the blog has variously become a site of lots of different activism so there was a recent post about chile um uh that was about the end, I think it's called the end of the transition to democracy in Chile, which, which was a translation, but which was a direct intervention in the events that were going on in Chile last year. Um, and so, yeah, it's, I, I mean, it's, it's shown us a, a zone of engagement, which we perhaps hadn't thought would work in that particular way, I guess. Does that answer mm. your question? I'm not sure if it does. 
Yeah, yeah. Trang Trang Fan has a question. Um, I can't. We can't see you, but uh, you don't have a camera. Yeah. Uh, hello. Hi. Hello. Yeah, we can hear you. Ah, you can hear me. Okay, great. Um, sorry, I I have to make a, the choice between superior audio and having access to a camera, and I always choose audio because important to hear. Um, I've my question. I'll pose it just quite um, in a really open way um, is I, I love to hear you um, speak to just the process of encountering something um, in the world where it's an event or an idea or a conversation and and what what takes that to, to, to the step of you wanting to write about it in a blog um, and as a kind of bonus question to that how many times have you started writing about something or you have even written the, the thing and then realized actually this is going to be terrible as a blog post? Yeah. Uh, so on the last one, I have a big folder of things which will never see the light of day. And yeah, I think um, uh, the, the, so the way in which I kind of subjects come, so I, uh, that's that's a really hard question. I I find I think what what news what unlike a journal article which I I start and I then kind of worry about for for months on end and then ultimately start writing after reading as much as I possibly can and then continue reading and then come back to it and you know there's like a it's a long process of circling around an idea. Um, blog posts are usually something happens which makes me think of something, connects through to some set of ideas that I've had in the past or have thought about in some way or theorized in some way. And I think mm, that would be an interesting way of, of, of thinking through this. And then uh, usually late at night, I write something and then come back to it in the morning. And, uh, you know, if it passes muster, then I, I will put it on the blog or give it at least to the editors to look at. Um, so like it's a much quicker process. It is, it is a response. And I think the more you kind of go over and, and rewrite and rewrite and rewrite, the, the more the style changes from something fairly quick and, and um, you know, kind of almost an instantaneous response maybe not quite instantaneous, but a, but a quick response to something much more closer to a journal article. I think if you look through the blog, you will see posts which have been not necessarily overworked, but like very heavily reworked and ones which are much more instantaneous or much quicker. Um, and I favor the, the quicker ones. And that's also because blogs, I mean, most of them have a fairly short life. So in the first three or four days, we'll get anything from, you know, some of them might only get 100 views, uh, up to 10,000 views in the first couple of days. And then, uh, and then after that, once it kind of falls down the blog, you're getting kind of 30 or 40 or 50 views a day. And then after a month or two, it's, it, it, you're, only, you're only getting a very small number of views. So, you know, things are read in the moment. And if they, most of them don't have a very long staying power. So, the, so there's this kind of, there's this, feeling of, of instantaneity or, or at least of, of um, connection with a particular moment, which I think is important. 
So I think when you're when you're thinking about writing a blog, if I were you, I would write something fairly quickly and send it before you can have second thoughts about it. Um, and the worst comes to worst, the editor editorial group will will just say no, uh, or or you won't get a response. Unfortunately, with quickly legal thinking, we get quite a few that are posts which which maybe we don't like, and because of the way we work. Um, none of us have a huge amount of time to give to the blog and so we end up so there's a rule basically after two weeks if we haven't responded that it's a rejection um because basically the way we work is people have to pick up particular pieces uh and and and, and take them forward themselves so um uh you know the the if you don't get a response within two weeks from critical legal thinking then then it's because it hasn't excited anybody enough for them to to pick it up and uh, and 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 publish it. Mm, we've got uh, <laughs> Ben saying that explains why he never heard back from you. Yeah. I was just going to say. We, I mean, we found... actually all of Ben's pieces <laughs> go straight to a junk pile. So. <laughs> well, you must think of me as some kind of old auntie then, because I always get very polite replies. <laughs> <laughs> Depends um, on which editor picks it up. You see. <laughs> we've got a question from um, from. Uh, Angela, I think, and then Daniel. I, I know that some of Ben's posts made it there because that's where I saw the PhD opportunity <laughs> come and work with Ben Golder. So I know at least one made it on there. Yeah, we're we're very good at publishing things which involve other like people paying people money. We're, like those <laughs> go straight up. Yeah, we're all grateful for that. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about the um, the submission. Uh, process you mentioned on the on the site that you don't have uh, editors as such but facilitators so is that is that a real distinction do we say facilitators yeah, what do you say uh, i mean it depends on who's, who, who the <laughs> last person who edited it is you um, say that we have several facilitators who stay in the background i hate facilitators that's <laughs> such a neoliberal world word um so there's there's basically a bunch of eight or nine of us um uh, who operate collectively as, uh, in other words, we get everything. We're kind of fairly dispersed around the world. Um, we have made a decision in the past, which I think may be about to change, that we would stay in the background. Um, I think somebody had just read The Invisible Committee, uh, that book, and felt like, you know, that we should, we should um, disappear or, like, we, we shouldn't be at the front of it, like saying, oh, we're the editors, uh, because ultimately that then makes it about us. But I think over the last couple of years, I think people tend to know the, at least three or four of the main people who are the people who are like most active in it. Um, so I think we're, we're about to change that and we're about to kind of put the collective a little bit more visibly on the, the site. But so the way it works is, yeah, so you submit something, um, we all receive an email, which specifically is from CLT, which says, you know, please consider this. And then we read it and are hopefully at least some of us will read it. And uh, then there tends to be a discussion, um, which can be, which, which is often quite fraught. Uh, we, we tend to disagree a lot about, about stuff. Um, I have a very kind of 
permissive approach, I'm of the view that we should be blogging as much as we can. And so long as something meet to, meets a basic threshold, then we should kind of let the readers decide whether or not it's something which, which is worthwhile. There are others on the, on the collective who are much, much, much more discerning than I, and who have kind of more set ideas about what they want to see uh, in, a, in a blog. Um, and so I think in the last couple of years, there's been a tendency to publish slightly less than we did before that, but to focus a little bit more on uh, on quality and on the readership that we think exists um, for better or worse. And um, the, so, the, so the process, it, I mean, your question is, is it, is it an editorial group or are we facilitators? Um, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a live question at the moment. Um, I would be of the view that our role is a conduit to try and allow as many people as possible to engage with that critical legal audience um, that we've developed over the last 10 or 15 years and um, uh, that, that our role is as a service to the community. And there are others who see us as a kind of a, a journal and their role is in quality control and um, monitoring style and so forth. And so that's, that's, that's a political question at the moment, which I don't think we've resolved. And I think it changes on a fairly regular basis, depending on. The other thing which I would say is that most of us, not all of us, but most of us are uh, academics um, of some stripe or another. And we are all subject to the types of pressures that academics tend to be subject to. And so sometimes, unfortunately, not getting a response from critical legal thinking is, has nothing to do with the quality or otherwise of your paper, but is actually about um, just how busy all of us are at the moment. And so I wouldn't be afraid of sending a reminder email just saying, hi, I submitted this piece. I wonder if you could let me know, even though I know we specifically say, like, if we don't respond to you, then that's a rejection. I, I would wouldn't be afraid to be a little bit more pushy than that and say you look you know any chance you'd let me know and if we don't respond to that then fine you can probably take that as a rejection but um uh i think it's you know pushing against the rules i think is sometimes quite wise in these things um uh so for instance at the moment we have a piece which is a brilliant interview <clears throat> with um uh mark neoclus and um uh, David, David Schraber, I think his name is, uh, about policing, which was originally commissioned to be published uh, in Hungarian, I think. And, but the interview was done in English. And so we have the interview and we have the offer to, to publish whatever we want from it. And it's a really, really good interview, uh, but it's also 8,000 words long. And so because none of us have had the time recently, we haven't yet been able to like segment that into several different posts, which we would publish or publish particular excerpts from it. And so, you know, we just got, I just got an email yesterday from the guy saying, uh, you know, you said you're interested in this, but you haven't gotten back to me. Can you please confirm? And it's just because we're all busy. It, there's, it has nothing to do with the quality or otherwise of the, of the work. Um, so, yeah. I think Daniel has a question and then Kathleen. Yes, thank you very much, Ilan. This was very insightful. I found that sometimes talking about writing in the abstract is, is not as helpful. And I was wondering if maybe I could press you to talk about your experience with a concrete block piece. And I was yeah. wondering in particular if you could maybe talk about the Boston body piece. It is perhaps one of my favorite blog posts written by you. So how did this piece come to be? Which challenges did you face? I think that would be very interesting to hear 
uh, from Orsay. This this is uh, this is the um, is that the mythopoetic critical yeah, yeah, legal society? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, that yeah. Okay. I wasn't expecting to talk about that. Um, uh, that came out of a discussion which was happening at the time and which is still happening as well beneath the surface about possibly setting up a critical legal studies association in the UK, um, which has been a really contentious debate for at least as long as I've been involved in uh, critical legal studies kind of since the early noughties. And there are a lot of views which say that there shouldn't be an association because then you constitute a certain type of power and so forth. And so uh, so that was one thing. The other thing that, that it came from was a project on uh, the history of critical legal studies, particularly focusing on the 80s and 90s, uh, which I was doing with Dan Matthews and Matt Stone, which involved a whole host of interviews, which we undertook with lots of different critical legal theorists who were around in the time, um, and which we realized was going to be so contentious that at the moment it's sitting on the back burner until some of them die off so that we can actually say what we think. Um, uh, the um, so, the, so it came from that, and it came from the impossibility of, of, of writing a lot of what we had discovered. And, uh, and at the same time, I was reading people like George Bata um, Bataille and that kind of problem around society. And I wanted to find a way of, of talking about um, uh, the, the, the things which I had been reading and discovering in those histories. Um, and the kind of political debate around societies uh, um, and associations. Um, and also, I'm, 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 really, I'm, I'm really tired of um, the way we write about ourselves. And I kind of wanted, like, one of the things that you feel when you read some of that early critical legal studies is, is how politically committed they were, and also how much they really didn't give a shit about the, or it feels like they, they didn't care about the, the kind of the constituted power within academia at the time and how willing they were to just take the piss and to be a little bit you know irreverent and so i kind of wanted to 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 do some of those things so i mean i i mean i don't think that's a, a necessarily representative of the type of work that we tend to publish on critical legal uh, um, critical legal thinking but that's mainly because we don't receive a huge amount of it rather than anything else um what were the things I'm just reading it to try and remember? Um, does that answer your question, or do you want do you want to follow up on it? No, 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 that's absolutely right. No, okay. sorry. You, no, no, not at all. No. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, okay. if more thoughts might come to you, but we've got uh, Kathleen and uh, and Robbie, but was there somebody in between Kathleen and Robbie that I missed out? No, okay, so Kathleen, please. Thanks so much, Ellen. Hello. Hi, Kathleen. How are you? <laughs> and Ben, hi. Um, my question's brief. Um, just, you were talking about the difference between pieces that are particularly topical and pieces that become key concept pieces. Yeah. And I'm wondering about the overlap between those and whether pieces that begin as topical are sometimes maybe adapted to be key concept pieces or whether they somehow change along the way um, in the course of uh, maybe editorial or whatnot. Yeah, I mean, 
most of the time we we're, we tend not to be that interventionist like if somebody wants to write a particular piece which involves a big amount of theorization then that's absolutely fine if they want to write something which is more topical that's also fine we don't particularly um police that sort of thing uh we we tend to try and commission key concepts so we ask people um anybody who's friends with me on facebook will have seen you know like every now and again i will say like oh my god we're missing this particular theorist anybody write something on that so for instance um the pieces on fanon i think had been commissioned uh and were because we felt like it was kind of disgraceful that we didn't have uh kind of some of fanon's key concepts but um uh and also when somebody starts writing a key concept, we often will then go back to them and say, look, will you write another one on another uh, aspect of that particular theorist? And sometimes they say no, or sometimes they say yes, and then ignore us for several years. Um, but it's, it, that's the kind of sporadic way in which, in which the blog works, on, for better or worse. Um, the, so the, the key concept, that's the key concept. So the, the main posts, like sometimes, depending on how much capacity we have, we will spend lots of time working with posts where we feel like there's something really important going on in it um but that it really is dependent our, on our capacity rather than anything else um uh, and at the moment i think we've been really bad in the last couple of months at because of because of moving online teaching and everything like that everybody has been really really busy and so i think we've been quite bad recently i should also say though in terms of topicality the blog inevitably i think moves with the times and so there are particular times so or when when covid kind of kicked off we just we, we published a couple of pieces on a gambon's response i think to covid and how really crappy it was and and then that brought out the agambanians and they got very excited about how wonderful his responses were and then that precipitated several more so in the end we ended up with a, a kind of a covid series which we, we were only, I think we only took about 10, 15% of what we had received. We tried to pick the ones which were, which were distinctive and added something rather than kind of repeating a lot of what had been said before. And so like almost inevitably, I think we were getting, um, we were certainly, certainly getting several tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of views um, a week in during the COVID period. We were like those, that debate, which kind of was staged there brought in a huge readership and then you know as as that set of debates kind of petered out then the readership kind of began to to fall away and so like when when there's something like covid or like a um a series of protests um uh and we and we publish something which precipitates more interests then inevitably we will end up publishing more in that period and and focusing more on that and like prioritizing the pieces which which engage with the debate which is going on on the blog and that was that was one of the purposes from the very outset we really liked that idea like those what it used to happen a lot in journals where you'd have a kind of a debate but what happens in critical legal thinking is that it's not a staged debate it's it's like in uh, something organic it's something which kind of emerges from below which people are discussing in whatever form and then it kind of transfers over into the blog and um the blog is kind of the forum for it so Mm. That's the kind of maybe a third kind of category where there's a kind of set of debates going on in the blog. 
There's a bank, uh, there's a queue of questions now, oh, Ellen. So I'll be quicker, I'll be quicker. No, no, not at all. Um, I'm just letting you know because I don't think you're following all of the uh, different tech mechanisms. So I'm not, got, I'm staying away from it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We've got Robbie and then Ben and then Danish. Thank you. This has been really interesting. My question's more procedural, I guess. Um, so is there anything to, um, worthwhile to be said about the genre of blogging and footnoting or hyperlinking or whether these are, whether there's anything surprising? Because um, of course we're used to footnoting a lot. I mean, uh, like we're very not, we're not picky at all. Um, I mean, I think probably in general, blogs would, are, are better where there are hyperlinks uh, because um, it doesn't break the reader's attention and they can just click straight through to it. Um, but that said, like I would say at least 60, 70% of the things we publish have footnotes um, and often, you know, old style footnotes without any links in them. And that's fine. That, like we're, we're not at all picky. We, we like, I think some blogs like EJL talks and the professions blog, um, are much more uh, concerned with making sure that, that, that everything is formally correct and we really don't care. Like, which I think probably says a lot about the um, ethos of the blog rather than we're much more interested in the ideas and we don't really care whether or not you put footnotes in. As long as, as everything is recognisable, like, you know, the, the, you, we have to be able to identify the text that you're talking about. But aside from that, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. You know, my question kind of follows on from Robbie's, but um, I guess it's really to ask you to talk a little bit more about the relationship between blogging and more formal pieces of academic work. So when I was listening to you talk at the beginning um, about the idea of the captivating snippet, um, uh, which is often not in evidence in more formal law journals or law review articles, and then talking about you know journal time and the turgid nature of more formal writing, yeah. um, you know, do you see, do you think of blog pieces as something that you might do once you've kind of worked up um, and written a more formal piece of writing and so the blog is a way of disseminating those ideas or is it, is that the wrong way around? Is it more that a blog is, you know, an initial encounter and then you might formalise that in a subsequent journal article? Um, perhaps you could say a little bit about that because it strikes me that, you know, many of the things you said about yeah, you know, like about the captivating snippet and about the hook. Um, you know, that that's a blog way to express kind of familiar criticisms that we might have of, of kind of more formal writing that it doesn't yeah. articulate the stakes well enough. You know, why the hell would we read it? Um, yeah. So maybe blog, blogging has things to teach us that we can learn for our longer form pieces of writing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, that's certainly, so, so on the kind of style question, there was a lot of work done when blogging kicked off and whatever, the late 90s or early noughties, I don't even know, like the depths of time, basically, about how <laughs> blogging would teach us about different forms of writing. And I think, I think that probably has happened, in, but I think it's kind of played out. I also think that, like, I think we need to think a little bit about uh, journalism, blogging and academic writing um, in, in their relations. So I think you know, what I've described in terms of that kind of hook uh, and development, you know, I think the same would be said in a way for journalism, that, you know, journalism needs to kind of connect through to somebody in that first couple of, of sentences and the title. Um, so, uh, but I think there is something slightly distinctive happening in each of them. Um, as regards the order of things, whether or not they, um, 
the blog happens before you do the, the big piece of research or after. I think generally speaking, the blog will happen before. So it's that initial encounter which, in which you try certain ideas out and you see what people think and what their comments are and whether or not it connects with people. And then from that, you perhaps develop it on, onwards. But that's, that's only how I think about it. I think a lot of other people would go the other direction. Um, uh, critical legal thinking does have a connection with uh, long critique um, uh, where we ask people who have published an, an article with long critique to write excuse me, to write a blog post about it, which is basically not necessarily a repetition of the journal article, but rather a kind of a transposition of the ideas into a blog form. Um, and it then depends on the author. Some authors do it really, really well, and some authors, you know, not, not so much. Um, and they, they end up kind of repeating the same kind of format as they, they did in the, in the article. Um, so I think, you know, for, for me, it's like, thinking about blogging, thinking about writing is all about infection. And mm -hmm. so like basically what makes a good blog post is, a, is that it's contagious. And I kind of think that that should apply to everything that we write. You know, if somebody doesn't yeah. read something and it then gets into them and they end up metabolizing it and making it part of themselves, then it probably wasn't that good an idea in the first place. So thinking about writing and about ideas is something which you are kind of you know, coughing on other people and which they're then picking up. <laughs> it's making them sick, it's changing them, it's changing their ideas. Like that, it's that, that idea of infection and contagion. That's, that's what we should be doing. We should be infecting everybody with critical legal thinking. And it's then... just that some of us have more contagious ideas than others. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, yeah. I think that's true, um, yeah. Shall I hand to Danish and then a shuffle? Yeah. Um, thanks a lot. Um, so I know that the key concepts um, section asks for a concept to be linked to a juridical concern, which, you know, as befits a critical legal thinking blog, but I noticed that that's not always the case in an obvious way. So particularly with um, the, the concepts under Irigare, for example. And so I, I guess my question was, how broadly do you construe this juridical concern? Yeah. So I think I think probably what you've come across is a tension within the blog with the group behind it who've written that text. Certainly, I don't conceive of the, the critical concepts as necessarily being connected to a juridical concern at all. On, and, and if it is, it's probably a nod in that direction. Because actually what you're trying to do is you're trying to explain a, an idea of a particular theorist through that theorist's work. And, and then it's up to the people who are going to be working with those ideas to connect them in whatever way they see fit. It's, it would be unfair to expect somebody to try and um, try and observe the different ways in which something could be picked up in legal critique. So I would say, I wouldn't worry about that particularly. I would say it's much more important to, to try and give as, as compelling uh, an explanation of uh, an idea or, or a theorist as you possibly can uh, and focus on that rather than on whether or not you've connected it to contract law or whatever. Oops. Ashrafal, do you have a camera? Yeah, there you go. Hi. Uh, actually, I wanted to ask the question about uh, the journal article and the blog thing. Uh, already, I think, answered. Uh, but I had another question uh, is uh, about how to actually choose the right platform. So we have now a lot of platforms, for example, uh, more mainstream and popular in the conversation uh, or some policy think tanks. Diarrhea working usually have uh, practical implication. So 
I wonder if I should choose uh, something which is very specialized and more academic or something more popular, like the conversation. Hmm. Um, that's a really good question. I think it probably depends on what you're writing. Uh, so I, I'd say two things. One, I would say, think about what you're reading and think about where you're reading it. So if the material that you're engaging with and the debates which you're engaging with primarily come from one or, or other source, then that's probably the place to publish it. Um, you know, I mean, so uh, if you're reading lots of EJL talks, then that's, that's, the, that's the audience that you're engaging with. And then they're the audience that you should be speaking to. It's the same with a journal, you know, like if you look at, at a piece you've written and it turns out that there's a lot of material from a particular journal, then that's the conversation that you want to be entering into. Um, Can I jump in there just to add something? Oh yeah, please. I don't yeah. know, um, Ashrafal, have you ever tried to write for the conversation? So do you know the conversation, Nila? I, I do, yeah. They, yeah. yeah, they've yeah. Um, do you, have you tried to write for them? Yeah, I published a conversation before. Because uh, in my experience, they're, that, they're much more into explainers and backgrounders and they're very much less uh, keen on political opinion or polemical stuff. And if you put put stuff in there that would happily find a home on critical legal thinking, the conversation will strip that part of it out. Mm. Um, so that makes a big difference in terms of whether you're trying to make a political intervention or whether you're trying to uh, clarify the terrain of debate in from an expert point of view in a certain sense so the conversation i would say tends toward the presentation of expertise and thinks of thinking in those terms whereas critical legal thinking allows for a more polemical style i think um, yeah that's fair yeah so that also makes a difference in terms of as you say a good test is what are you reading but also once you start trying to publish in different places you'll get a sense of what they're looking for in a way that simply reading may not reveal. I think there's a good deal of contingency as well. Like it, it really does depend on the editor that you get in, in, in every place you're going to engage with. And that applies to journal articles as well, I think. Mm. But, um, you know, the editor that I, so I've never published with a conversation, but I know one of the editors really well. And um, she is interested in kind of more kind of critical stuff, but I think she only folks works in the UK and it's because she's connected to this kind of radical funder that I've, work with and so I think I think there's that contingency is impossible to know in advance you know you never know who you're going to get unless you actually know them personally um, and so yeah I kind of, part of me thinks like don't get just don't get get worried too much about you know if, if you get rejected from particular places then just I kind of think keep hawking it around and see see where you where it ultimately gets you but um, there's a question from Siddharth as well I think we've got time for one or two more questions. Um, hi, hi, Ellen. Thanks, thanks for that. that. That was really useful. Um, so I was just when you mentioned that the readership of the blog was quite varied and sometimes even surprised you. I was just wondering whether you could talk a little bit more about what 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 kind of readership uh, the blog really has, uh, both geographically as well as, um, you know, if it's outside academia and outside the critical legal studies kind of uh, grouping, what, 
who, who are the people who are really reading this the, the, the blog and can i have an add-on question there because i was thinking something similar to that but in terms of how do people find the posts so do, do people google terms and get thrown to you or do they come to you to to read like they would come to the guardian or or something um so so on who reads i mean like it's very very difficult because we we through the blog software that we have we get a breakdown of stats which is just kind of hard numbers um and from that we can see that we have a really large audience in the uk the us australia and then less than that by a, a fairly large order we have a good readership in continental europe um uh, latin america and in india in particular um and then below that again by a good order of numbers we might say the rest of the world so um i think so the, 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 that's the kind of that's the rough distribution um the that said, there are some posts which are picked up in particular places. I, when I was, when you were talking, I was trying to think of an example, and I can't off the top of my head think of an example. And apologies, I, it's been a while since I've looked at the stats in any, you know, very closely. Um, but uh, the, you know, it's basically so every now and again we will get a particular post that will go viral or you know comparatively viral in a particular country, and then that will. Uh, you know, move around within that space. And then we will then see a kind of um, like a shadowing where, uh, you know, for, for a month or so afterwards, we have an elevated number of reads from that particular country. Um, one of the things which has amazed me, you know, I think we tend to think about the internet in global terms, but actually uh, the networks are often, they often tend to be quite national and once you kind of break into a national network then it then then it hovers around there for a good bit of time um so south africa for instance is a place where we have a fairly good readership um and a kind of a continuing readership but uh i mean beyond that so how do people get to us i think i think you know the that um social media um and um people who uh, register on the site and get uh, update emails i think that accounts for a significant chunk of our readership and i think those are people so i don't i mean there are people who come back and look at the blog every now and again to, to check it like they would read the guardian um but i think that our the way we think of our readership are is we, we think about it as the people who follow us on twitter and, and on facebook and through the emails and so forth that's that's how we think about our stable readership and i think that accounts for a good chunk of it and then i think um and then i think when you have an event which like like covid which where we have where we host a debate and that debate then kind of you know kind of blows up to some extent then at that point, we, we simultaneously extend our readership. So the number of people who subscribe to the blog in various different ways will increase. But also um, there will be there will be people who come and check the blog kind of more regularly for kind of updates and discussions around it. So um, uh, outside of academia, again, that's really difficult to to put any sort of numbers on. And it's something which we have to kind of rely on people coming back and, and talking to us. And so um, 
we did a piece on um, uh, oil and um, in Colombia, it was Lara Montesinos Coleman. Um, I think it must be two years ago now, which which had a number of um, revelations about. Um, I'm really trying to remember now. It was really controversial in Colombia at the time. There was this kind of there. Basically, it was like environmental destruction, human rights violations being done by a, uh, an oil company that was simultaneously greenwashing. Uh, and and trumpeting its its human rights uh, agenda, you know, surprise, surprise. But nonetheless, in Colombia at the time, it was it was quite controversial, and so that that got picked up and moved around a lot around a lot of kind of um, uh, social movements uh, in the space. And in particular, the fact that it was being published in this you know distant blog in English had this lent this kind of credibility and this this. I mean, maybe authority is the wrong word, but it it it, it had a, a different feeling than it just coming out in one of their social media feeds, um, and so uh, you know those sorts of interventions. The the fact that we do publish in English, although some pieces have simultaneous translations as well, but the fact that we do publish in English and the fact that we are perceived to come from a particular space, sometimes people can use that politically, and that can become quite quite useful for them um, it can also blow up in the wrong direction as well like these are these people intervening what do they know etc that sort of dispute but I think we always have to suffer that risk uh, for it um, so but I, I mean I think that's probably more the exception than the rule the majority of posts are you know they, they are aimed at um, academic audiences and then the, the autodidactic uh, non-academic audiences who are interested in the debates. Um, you, will you have time for one more question? Yeah, fine. The school run doesn't start for another half an hour, so I'm fine. All right. Well, one more question and then uh, I'll hand it back to Ben to do the thank yous. Sonia. Hi. Um, so my question, uh, can you hear me? I can. Okay. So my question was kind of a follow-up to what Ben had asked about where to place blogging in terms of your journalist uh, uh, academic journal work as well mm -hmm. so i'm just wondering in terms of um if the blog is much more of the gist of an argument that you're going to publish later in an, in an academic piece and especially considering journal articles take so long to get published i feel like especially at this stage and graduate as a graduate student uh, i mean there, it just feels much easier to publish in a blog just a, just of that idea than rather than you wait for let's say a year or two years until you get published in an academic piece. And I'm just wondering if it makes sense to be, to just put that, your ideas out there in that, let's say in a fully formed, like the argument that you're making in a much simpler words. And then does that impact like what the, the journal's original, the, you know, the eventual academic mm. piece that'll come up years later. And also because I feel like in certain spaces, like I work in Pakistan and there is people don't write like academic work especially legal academic work everyone just posts puts like opinion pieces there's no mm. people don't actually publish an academic publication so that if you want to have a conversation with other people writing on on this you know space then you do it through articles blogs or newspaper articles so but then uh, you do i do wonder if it you know takes away from the eventual article that you're going to write or if it's just like giving away your ideas Without yeah. having to take a stake to claim on it um, on a more academic piece. That's that's a good question. It's something which we've we've struggled with for for a while. 
Um, so firstly, I should say that uh, that the blog is published on an open access basis. So it, it you know basically you're not handing over any IP or anything like that to the blog, unlike a journal article where you're signing over lots of different rights. Um, and we're happy for you to republish it wherever you want, uh, or and and also uh, if the ideas which you publish in the blog post go into a journal article, then then the the blog has absolutely like we have no say over that in any way we don't claim any rights or anything like that um so in that sense the blog is specifically thought of as an open space which doesn't have any of the kind of uh ties that uh that um kind of conventional uh publishing would would try and impose so there's no formal reason why you wouldn't uh publish the gist of an idea as you say and then go on and develop it more in a journal article um, whether or not journals have a problem with it, I, my impression is that they don't. Um, uh, I don't think that I've ever come across a situation where uh, a journal has refused a piece because an author has published the argument in critical legal thinking. Um, if anything, often, certainly the more forward-thinking journals like the idea that you're engaging and discussing and kind of getting feedback and um and developing your ideas further through these fora uh before you you kind of come to them with a a fully developed piece and so you know i think there's there is a benefit there however that's not to say that they're that they wouldn't that that that, that it can't happen um but it's just that we've never come across it in the last 10 years uh, and we hope that it wouldn't have a problem we have had a number of people who've taken down posts on critical legal thinking for a variety of reasons, some political, some because of um, views that were expressed in it and which, you know, the political reality has changed and suddenly those views are suddenly very dangerous in the space they're in. Um, and so insofar as we can, we've scrubbed our uh, databases of that material and, um, uh, you know, so I, you know, I, I I think for some reason, sometimes people um, need, have other reasons that they might want to take something down. If if a journal did knock something back because it was because of pre-publication of parts of it in critical legal thinking, then you could also retract it from critical legal thinking. Um, although I, that would be quite extreme, um, and as I say, we've never come across it. Um, uh, as regards giving your ideas away, I mean, I so as I said at the beginning, I, like I, I I think of blogging as as like an in, as an infection, the kind of contagion, um, a nice contagion, not the kind of COVID contagion. Uh, um, and so part of the joy of blogging is that it, the ideas do get taken up by others, um, and I think that's something we should be aiming for. Um, at the same time you know you it does give you an opportunity to put your name beside an idea and so you even though i would resist the kind of proprietary thinking of with ideas you it is an opportunity for you to have your name with a, a set of ideas and so there is that you know you like you do get the benefit of it in the same way as you would with a journal article um yeah, I think I think that answers it. I feel like I've missed the third part of your question, but I've I've forgotten it now and I didn't write it down, which is what's silly. Yeah, and I think that is probably ample, um, and I'm sure that we could kind of take things up uh, in a different um, format. People could perhaps email questions through, but 
I'm conscious that um, we're intruding on the school run hour and you've already been incredibly infectious and generous in your comments so far. I'm also conscious that your school run is also my dinner run and there are clamorous mouths downstairs that need feeding. Um, so on behalf of everybody, Ellen, I wanted to thank you, not just for getting up early um, before the first cup of coffee, but being so generous and so insightful, insightful with your thoughts about blogging and academic work. You've given us lots to think about. So thank you on behalf of Sun and myself and everybody else on the call. This was really excellent. Thank you so much for your time. Can I, can I just say also say thank you, but also the, the questions were really brilliant. They were really, really insightful and, and helpful. And I'm going to take them forward when I'm talking to my undergraduates about it. Well, your enthusiasm is definitely infectious, Ellen. <laughs> thank you all. So thank you. Nice to see you. See you. You've been listening to the ILLA podcast. To find out more, go to soundcloud.com forward slash ILLA podcast. That's double I-L-A-H podcast.